0: Hello, I'm Elaine from Advo Health. And today, um, on our episode of our May Mental Health Month podcast, we have Dr. Verma with us. And thank you so much, Dr. Verma, for taking your time to take in part in our podcast series. And it'd be great if you could start with introducing yourselves to the audience.
1: Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, um, Elaine. And thank you uh, to your uh, organization, Advo Health, for uh, inviting me to, to speak. Um, So my name is Dr. Sean Verma, um, MD. I'm a uh, psychiatrist and a clinical fellow um, at the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine. Um, I uh, completed my undergrad and medical school um, from the East Coast um, at Brown University, and then um, went on to complete my um, residency in general adult psychiatry. Um, in New York, uh, which also happens to be where I grew up. And then um, I made the um, exciting and uh, uh, big move to Southern California, which has been a goal of mine for a long time. So I'm doing my two-year fellowship. I'm ha- about halfway through the two years. Um, and my subspecialty is going to be in, it is in and will be in child and adolescent psychiatry. So I work a lot with young young people, youth, young adults um, on their mental health struggles and trying to get um, people really feeling better. And, um, and it's great work because um, I get to help, ideally, at least help the individual patient or client, but also kind of the ripple out um, and affect their friends, family members, and you know, in a way kind of society um, by third, second, third, fourth degree effects of what we do. So it's really cool work. Um, It's kind of a lesser lesser known or lesser popular kind of medical subspecialty, but it is a specialty of medicine. Um, We all psychiatrists did go to medical school. um, And yeah, so I'm here excited to talk about my work and kind of how it can kind of impact the broader community and answer some questions um, that might be pertinent to your listeners.
0: We will start off with our first question. Um, and what are the different types of mental health care?
1: Yeah, great. Um, so I know you've had some previous episodes on your podcast about, um, mental health and, um, talk therapy, psychotherapy, things like that. So I did just kind of want to address, um, some of the different categories of mental health care. Um, and kind of hopefully this can help kind of elucidate um, kind of the the opaque uh, or black box of mental health care that some of the um, general public kind of is isn't as um, aware of. So um, in general, when we when we think about like levels of mental health care, um, and this is the same with like other branches of of medicine or healthcare as well. Um, there's there's outpatient and there's inpatient. Uh, for medical care and for mental health care. Uh, And then there's for specifically and unique to mental health care, there's also some other like quote unquote levels of care. Uh, So outpatient care um, is kind of what most people um, think about when they think about kind of going to therapy like once a week or um, every few weeks um, and going to see their psychiatrist, for example, uh, who, you know, every once a month or every few months. So that that's kind of outpatient mental health care. It's, it's kind of the most um, integrated with the person's kind of regular life. These are people, you know, you or I or p- other people may know that are in therapy and maybe um, also seeing a doctor who manages or prescribes them medicine for mental health. And so it's kind of um, well integrated into the lives. It's not too disruptive. Um, things are, appointments can happen in person, in an office. Um, They can also happen, you know, right now, obviously, um, the big thing in the last couple of years has been virtual telehealth or telemedicine or telepsychiatry as it's sometimes coined, um, teletherapy. So um, people can access um, a therapist and doctor um, that way. Um, And then inpatient mental health care is sometimes, um, is like hospital mental health care. So these are people who uh, necessitate um, staying uh, re- being admitted to a hospital. Uh, for example, um, UC Irvine Medical Center, um, or uh, there's other ones in our in our local area too. Um, and these people um, often stay in a hospital for some period of time. It can be a few days. It can be longer. Um, to receive more intensive mental health care. So it it usually involves um, some combination of therapy, medicine, um, other interventions um, to really bring them, restore them to, to a better level of functioning and better level of mental health care. Um, there is there is a lot of stigma, um, I I feel maybe historically um, at least, about inpatient mental health care and what that means, but I can maybe talk a little bit more about about it and shed some light on it. but. In general, I think um, as a field, psychiatry has really come a long way and um, really made inpatient mental health care in a lot of cases um, a very beneficial treatment setting for um, patients and families who um, are are in severe need. Um, That being said, there is also a shortage of mental health professionals, um, both psychiatrists as well as um, therapists, which can include psychologists, uh, licensed clinical social workers, uh, other, other master's level degree um, uh, pro- therapy providers um, uh, to, so so that translates also to a shortage of um, inpatient and outpatient services right now. So that's a big need in our society um, for bringing, bringing the services to the level that um, our, our, our community members, families, friends um, deserve. Um, And then, so inpatient and outpatient are kind of the two uh, quote unquote like extremes. And then in between inpatient and outpatient, if we're talking about kind of inpatient being kind of the lowest quote unquote level of care and um, outpatient being the lowest and inpatient being the highest, there's a few in between. So there's there's an intermediate level of care called intensive outpatient, which is IOP often stands for intensive outpatient program. So that's a little bit higher than outpatient. Um, and it's usually a few days a week, often in the afternoon, if it's um, young people who are going to school or going to a job, and then they can attend a few hours of therapy and counseling and um, see a doctor for medicine um, in, the, in, in their off hours. So they, they're, they're still you know, coming home at the end of the day. Um, they might just go in person or virtually to, um, to pr- this program a few days a week. Um, and then there's a level above... There's a level above IOP called PHP, partial hospital program. That's a little bit more intense instead of like a few hours, a few days a week. It's more like maybe, for example, six to eight hours, like four or five days a week, for example. So it kind of usually stands in the place of going to school or maybe even going to a job. Um, and it's usually for a few, for some period of time, it might be a month or so, um, or it can be shorter or longer depending on. And the, Intensive outpatient program also is usually about the same length of time. It can be a few weeks to maybe a month or two. Um, so these are usually time-limited um, programs, and they are more, more intensive than regular outpatient care would be. So for people that have higher levels of need for mental health services, but don't rise to the level of being needing to stay in a hospital and stay there for a few days or a week or longer, um, this these intermediate levels of care allow them to access the services, but also not be too disruptive, hopefully, to their kind of regular functioning lives because they still have to, you know, go home at the end of the day and, you know, meet their other obligations. Um, And then there's one level kind of also um, in between PHP and inpatient and that's called residential. Um, So it's um, different states kind of have different policies and um, protocols regarding residential but These are usually programs um, where people that are being discharged from an inpatient um, facility, they may go to, um, and it's usually longer term, um, but it's quite perhaps not quite as intense and not quite as restrictive as being in in an inpatient uh, mental health unit. So residentials um, can often be for perhaps a month or a few months. but it's where people can kind of go, kind of for longer term stabilization and kind of recovery if they need kind of more um, closer supervision or, or more access to services. So those are kind of in general the the different types of mental health care um, uh, that at least the ones that um, in mainstream practice kind of we refer to. There's also there's also some other types. There's um there's things like kind of uh, wilderness therapy. That's a little kind of um, not quite as mainstream, but still exists. There's um, like equine therapy. There's, there's a whole bunch of different um, kind of alternate kind of therapies. Um, but the ones I mentioned uh, before, like the outpatient, IOP, PHP, residential and inpatient, the, those five are kind of what, what we consider kind of the main, more mainstream um, types of levels of mental health care.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for shedding light on that, because I know there's a lot of stigma over um, especially patients that are hospitalized and like why exactly they're hospitalized. Um, yeah, so I think providing that information is really valuable and also how like mental health is like a spectrum. It's not just like being well, like we're being completely, I guess, unwell. Um, and then just adding on to that, like, um, I know there's like, some different types of medication that can be used to treat certain mental health disorders, so like how effective are those, and like what types are used? Are there any potential side effects?
1: Yeah, um, so there are in general um, so there's a lot of medications which uh, many of which have have a very established track record of safety um, and uh, can be used under the careful um, careful supervision and prescribing of a physician, a medical doctor, or um, another licensed practitioner who can prescribe medications, um, such as a psychiatric nurse practitioner in in some states. Um, And so I'll just make a disclaimer um, that none of what I'm about to say constitutes um, direct medical advice. Um, I am not um, assuming uh, any kind of doctor-patient relationship with anyone listening to this podcast. Um, This is merely general, kind of for your information, you know, knowledge for any of the listeners. But um, please do not take any of this to mean um, an endorsement on my part of any medication or any specific treatment. Um, And please do consult uh, a licensed physician or other licensed um, medical provider for specific um, advice regarding uh, advice or information regarding medications. So I'll just make that disclaimer. Uh, very abundantly clear just to start. Um, So with that being said, um, there are a few different um, classes of medications, types of medications that um, as specifically as psychiatrists, uh, we become very familiar with through our school and education and training. Um, And um, it's important to note that um, psychiatrists do you know are are obviously um, well versed and and familiar with these medications but so are many other types of doctors so for example um, primary care doctors your your kind of regular doctor you go to kind of if you have a you know if you sprained your knee or if you have a common cold or something you know those doctors also went to medical school so so they are familiar with these medications too and they are um, you know, in many cases, able to prescribe some of these medications as well. They're comfortable, familiar with them. So um, so that, that kind of opens up a lot more access to uh, mental health medications, because um, sometimes there can be longer wait times, for example, to um, get in to see a psychiatrist currently. Um, but in terms of general classes of medications, so there are antidepressant medications, which as the name implies, the these are medications that treat clinical depression. Um, uh, there are anti-anxiety medications, also called anxiolytic, um, lytics or lysis in in um, Greek is kind of to to break up or dissolve. So um, these are medications that kind of like theoretically kind of dissolve anxiety. They they kind of treat anxiety, right? So um, anxio, anxiolytic medications. They're In addition to those two classes of medications, there are um, antipsychotic medications. So these are medications which um, can treat psychosis. Um, uh, uh, Probably the more common um, psychotic condition is schizophrenia, but there are other um, similar but distinct um, psychotic conditions. Um, so antipsychotic medications can be used to treat those. Antipsychotic medications can also, um, in general, be sometimes used to help stabilize a person's mood. They can sometimes be be used to help augment certain other types of medications like antidepressants. Um, In acute settings, um, antipsychotic medications can be used to treat uh, extreme severe agitation, Um, so they do have a variety of uses. and then there, another class of medication is called mood stabilizers. Um, and so, most commonly, these are medications used to treat a bipolar disorder or bipolar illness. Um, so, those are uh, characterized by um, significant and large fluctuations um, and sustained for sustained periods of um, high and low moods. So, usually, um, these mood episodes, highs and lows, are si- extreme and, and significant and they last for sustained periods of time. Um, So mood stabilizers can be used to treat those. Um, And there are sedatives and hypnotics. Um, These are medicines that um, can have some anxiety relieving effects, but they're more commonly used to treat sleep disorders. So people with insomnia, um, people who have other sleep disorders, so those are those are I think off the top of my head those are the main classes of psychiatric medications.
0: Um, okay. And so then, I guess just like a follow up question: Are there any potential like side effects, and how effective are these medications in general?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, so it, it it's important again to consider, um, you know, talking to a a licensed practitioner, so like a doctor, for example, um, about specific side effects and risks, benefits. And um, if a loved one or yourself are considering, um, you know, or, or you want to convey information to them, um, please do direct them to, you know, a licensed, a licensed prescriber. Um, but uh, it, in a lot of cases, um, these medications are relatively, you know, in a lot of cases, the benefits of them do outweigh um, you know, any potential side effects, but there, there are with any, with any medication, even if you're treating, um, you know, uh, your, uh, just headache, you know, taking Tylenol or something, or if you're, you know, treating a, 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 a cold or you have, you know, a cough or asthma or some kind of infection, there's side effects with all medicines, um, theoretical side effects. So th- it's no different with psychiatric medicines. Um, some of the side effects can be more short-term um, and more mild or benign, things like having headache, stomach ache, um, a little bit of nausea, um, but some of the side effects can be a lot more serious and severe. and so that's why, why it's important to discuss with your physician um, whether um, it makes sense for you to um, or your loved one to, to consider medicine if it's indicated. Um, so it is important to discuss um, uh, the risks and benefits. Um, and take that information into account. But in general, a lot of these medications are are well tolerated. um, And if there are side effects, um, then your doctor can closely monitor those side effects through um, appointments, through uh, lab tests such as uh, blood work or um, urine tests. And um, they can address any of those side effects if they were to come up.
0: Okay. So I just, I guess just like adding on to that, um, are there any natural remedies or like how effective are those like vitamin D exercise, omega-3s, any like homeopathic medicine?
1: Great question. Yeah. So, um, so the research, um, there has been some research done, um, and, um, admittedly as a medical doctor, um, our scope of education, um, focuses more on kind of the the more medicine or biological kind of um, interventions to treat physical and mental um, ailments. So I'm I'm definitely not the like an expert in kind of the homeopathic medicine or, or other natural remedies. But I do know that, for example, um, in general, um, things like a low vitamin D level can Im- Im- impact a person's mood, for example. Um, we there is some good evidence that exercise is very beneficial for mental health. there, you know for low grade cases of anxiety or even possibly perhaps depression, that exercise can be beneficial. Um, please also please do consult a physician if you're you know considering any of these um, forms of um, remedies like exercise or vitamin D, and they can counsel you more directly. As far as the other the other question you asked um, Elaine about. Omega threes. Um, that one, I'm I'm not familiar with um, evidence that really supports omega threes in in um, in benefit towards um, specific mental health um, ailments. But it may exist. I'm I'm just not aware. And as far as homeopathic medicine, um, to my knowledge, there's there's not quite as robust um, gold standard evidence in like randomized double blind placebo-controlled trials, um, looking at homeopathic medicine versus placebo or versus other established, more established um, evidence-based interventions. But it may exist. It may be more anecdotal or kind of more um, cultural. So it's not to take away from cultural practices, which can really be beneficial in in certain, you know, culturally sanctioned settings. Um, Just kind of, we're kind of admittedly a little bit biased here in Western medicine as as doctors, um, physicians, because we haven't just been exposed to all that's out there. And we're kind of basing um, our standard of practice on the data and literature that we've been exposed to through our schooling and education training. So, um, yeah.
0: Okay, great. Just moving on to more of like the diagnosis part of mental health. um, Are there any dangers of like self-diagnosis? Because I know there's a lot of online resources that like list potential symptoms that could lead to Potential self-diagnosis.
1: Yeah, great question. Um, so, in terms of self-diagnosis, so I would I would in general um, encourage everyone if they um, are concerned about themselves or or someone they know to um, seek a professional uh, guidance um, regarding. Any mental health diagnosis, Um, I think that you know we um, uh, you know as a professional in the space of mental health, um, we do we do go through many years of education um, and training. Um, So for myself, for example, post high school, um, so I'll have done thirteen years um, of post high school um, education and training. So it's like a myself was four years in in undergraduate college, then after that four years of medical school, and then in total it'll be five years of post-medical school training, so combined residency and fellowship. Um, So that is to say that in those years we do get uh, exposed to a lot of information which informs how we treat, treat our patients and treat clients that we can, specifically as psychiatrists, we can Often distinguish what is a medical cause or physical cause of someone's mental health issue from a primarily psychological or psychiatric cause. Um, so, if if someone is merely looking at social a social media post or an online source, you know th- some other things can be potentially missed that may um, impact um, a, a misdiagnosis for a self self diagnosis, for example. Um, so, I would always encourage everyone to seek. The professional counsel before they diagnose themselves um and to avoid doing that if possible because um it's it's like you you know if if you um you know you go to the expert um who's gone you know gone through the training and knows the field um because that's why we have specialists and experts so people that can um shed that light and also you want to make sure that um that we are um, we are being true to to um, each other, and so we want to make sure that you know the information that we spread is based on science. And we can't always verify um, the validity of certain online sources or social media, um, and those things have not been, for example, peer reviewed or they haven't gone through the rigorous standards that um, you know the the mainstream. Um, of mental health care has has gone through. Um, So so I would definitely encourage people to avoid self-diagnosing and seek counsel of a mental health professional or or other doctor before making those decisions for themselves.
0: Yeah, so I think it's definitely important to always verify with a health professional, especially with so much misinformation and I guess the kind of half-truths on social media even that make it more believable um, and that causes a lot of just misconceptions about mental health in general. So, um, also just adding on to that, uh, what are some main misconceptions or like mental health stigma you see in like mental health patient, family members, or friends?
1: I think, fortunately, at least comparing um, where we are currently in our society um, to kind of at least maybe where things were um, a generation or two ago. Um, So I'm talking decades ago. Um, I think there has been more um, a broadening of of, um, talking about mental health and it's become kind of more of a language that more people are um, becoming familiar with. Whereas maybe 50 years ago or hundred years ago, it was um, something that I think saw very little um, attention relative to today at least. And so there was perhaps even more stigma back then. Um, And you know, going even further back, there were a lot of misconceptions. So I think it's important to kind of um, frame or couch kind of where we are today in the context of kind of history. But I do think still there are um, some barriers or or misconceptions um, or stigmas around mental illness. Um, And in particular, um, like you mentioned, Elaine, like the more Kind of serious or, or severe um, mental illnesses. Um, so I think it's important to note that um, uh, mental illness, um, at least in current, current day and age psychiatry, uh, we often look at the biological, the psychological, and the social factors of mental illness. Often a misconception is that something is um, maybe more psychological or social. there does seem at least to be some kind of genetic or hereditary pattern to the way people tend to think or the way people tend to feel or process emotions or um, so it's it can be complex and some of those genetic factors can be um, affected or altered by a person's social or psychological. Um, experiences as well. So it, it, it's kind of like an epigenetic, we call it, um, phenomenon that the genes and the uh, kind of the biology can be altered by uh, the sociology or the psychology of a person and vice versa. The, the biology um, of a person can, of course, alter their their psychology and their sociology too. There's, there's pretty strong um, kind of links, you know, for example, between stress and uh, stress and development of uh, conditions like depression or anxiety. So, um, and, you know, even certain, uh, certain medications that people may take for other completely unrelated conditions can cause people to experience mental suffering or mental illness. So there's, there's definitely a biological component there. We know, um, you know, particularly, I think everyone probably is aware of the harmful effects that that certain kind of substances like um, drugs can have on a person's mental health and stability. So um, it's really important to know that um, there's biological, there's psychological, and in a lot of cases, social factors to mental illness. And it's not all just one or the other, um, where we've kind of come to, in modern day and age psychiatry is to kind of embrace all three and to kind of, um, it, it, it often gives us a more nuanced or, um, for uh, de- well well developed um, understanding of a person to think about all three, um, and then kind of just some general information for the students, l- listeners out there, or um, any family members or people that are really passionate about um, this field, or this area. There are some organizations out there that are working really hard to fight against the stigma of mental illness to try to broaden access to mental health care. Um, coverage for mental health care, things like that. Um, One of the probably most prominent organizations um, in the US at least is called NAMI, um, the National Alliance um, of Mental Illness. And this this is an organization that um, friends and family members um, of folks who are suffering from from severe mental illness can partner with and they can can access resources of NAMI, they can, access to, in some cases, support groups, um, uh, and other types of benefits to them that um, can benefit both themselves and their their family member or loved one that has a severe mental illness. So, um, in, and then in terms of just kind of speaking out, um, stu- things students can do to, to fight these conceptions. I think if, if a friend or peer uh, or anyone you know is really um, comes to you or, or seems that they're they're really suffering um mentally i think just um you know kindly and gently you know expressing to them that there is help um, for them and that you know there are resources out there that are that you know are there to to help people in those situations um so if it's you know if it seems to be um if people are concerned that um you know, someone is um, in imminent harm to themselves. Then there are some resources out there that can help people in those emergency situations. Um, um, if there, if it's, if it seems in general, kind of, um, you know, there, there are also other resources out there. There's, you know, campus resources. If there, we're talking about college students. There's, you know, student counseling at the high school level. So there's all different levels um, and ways that, as students, students can kind of help their peers and and help themselves if they need it um, to and. I think by kind of advocating and um, being uh, you know allying with mental health um, mental health care, I think we're we're lessening the stigma over time. We're making care more accessible to people, and um we are again working to kind of overcome those misconceptions that exist.
0: Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think. Um, a lot of people in my community, fortunately, are really passionate about mental health, and that's helped break a lot of the mental health stigma in my school, uh, which I think is a great thing. Um, and obviously, there's more things that we can do to continuously advocate for mental health. Um, so, our last question would be kind of related, but when people are getting treatment for mental health, you know, sometimes there might be really long wait times. So, are there any like coping mechanisms? coping mechanisms or like tips you would suggest in the meantime
1: in terms of like specific coping mechanisms or tips um, so I think that answer would is is really um, best given on like a case-by-case basis um, together with one's therapist or psychiatrist for example who can really provide kind of tailored recommendations about coping mechanisms and tips for how to enhance mental health but I think kind of in general you know we live um, you know a lot of us are you know, feeling the pressures of, of COVID, the pandemic kind of weighing on us. We're feeling, you know, a lot of other kinds of external or internal pressures, you know, to, to, you know, maybe meet certain milestones in our lives or kind of um, meet certain goals. Um, this, ha- this is, you know, something present at all stages of life, you know, from a young child up to, you know, the oldest of the old that these, I think all of us as human beings, we have, you know, s- some things that we are you know, trying to work towards, and For some that can be manageable, but for others that can be, you know, really stressful. It can be, it can cause, you know, mental, um, a lot more mental anguish. An important thing I've at least learned through my, um, you know, early stage career is the importance of just compassion and kindness to ourselves. Um, I think that if, I think that if a lot of us were to be more kind and forgiving of ourselves and more compassionate, um, in times, especially when we are feeling down or um, kind of uh, feeling isolated or um, feeling sad, I think that um, it it can help us to just forgive ourselves and forgive how we're feeling. That it's okay, you know. We, as human beings, we all experience um, emotions, and sometimes those emotions can can be um, more more extreme or severe. Um, and so, and. know to of course if if it's getting to the point of really impacting or impairing a person's life or it's threatening their well-being then you know we need to um speak out for those and um connect them with the proper resources that can help but um you know i think just being being kind to ourselves is is an important place to start and then hopefully over time you know that kindness can spread to others and we can be kind to our our neighbors and our friends and you know, our families, and then, you know, the, as a society, we can just move towards hopefully more understanding of one another, and um, helping, wanting to help one another, Um, so I think, you know, just um, being aware of ourselves, being aware of what we need in the moment, you know, some people, if they're, if they're feeling stressed, or, you know, need, need, you know some some people do do good better when when they're around other people and when they have a outlet like a social outlet or they um they're in groups with other friends or other people they other people you know if they're feeling down or sad or stressed you know they need maybe just a little bit more time alone to just kind of recharge their batteries and, and kind of get themselves you know back to their back to their baseline um, so i think a, a tip would be just you know, develop, develop some level of understanding about ourselves and what we need in any given moment. You know, general tips would be just make sure, you know, make sure, you know, we're sleeping well, make sure we're eating well, getting enough food and nutrition. That's very important. Um, you know, to the extent we can tolerate and possible, I think uh, some amount of exercise can benefit a lot of people. Um, again, please consult, you know, a professional before trying any new exercise regimen or anything like that. Um, but, know a lot of times it's just really getting down to the you know the basics like you know what um food sleep exercise you know social socializing i think by and far human beings you know we're social beings we we do better when we're in a tribe right historically you know we've all we've all co-evolved together so you know being a part of some group or community that we can really identify with can be very empowering and help us develop you know a more you know clear identity and purpose in life. I think having a purpose can be, is very important for all of us to have something that we feel passionate about that we wanna do and do it for our lives and do, you know, do in our lives. So, um, and then there can be other kind of coping mechanisms, some, you know, things like meditating helps some people. Um, there are a bunch of kind of apps and, and digital health ways of um, kind of staying grounded, certain grounding techniques. Um, that these practices like meditating can help us to develop. Um, it can be again just something so simple as just like calling up a friend to say hi, or you know, um, you know, spent going for a walk outside or spending time in nature. Um, these these types of activities can can in a lot of cases really help to reset a person and help people to feel better um, in the moment at least. Um, so yeah, I think. Uh, You know, little things, and then being aware and recognizing ourselves and in those close to us when, um, the symptoms may seem kind of more severe and may warrant, um, like attention from from a a health professional.
0: Yeah, I really like the part where you said, um, just kind of being more forgiving. I tend to be kind of the more perfectionist type, and sometimes just like recognizing that it's okay to like not be okay. I guess, um, is is just really helps. So. Yeah, definitely on that. Um, So thank you so much, Dr. Verma, for answering all our questions today. And we know the mental health crisis is a really big issue, especially because there's so much stigma around it. And then also like a lack of awareness, I guess, in general about treatment methods and like medications. And it's really valuable and inspiring to have your opinion as a professional. Uh, we will be posting the podcast on our Instagram. And thank you so much again for your time. And we really appreciate having you here today.
1: Thank you so much, Elaine. And thanks to EpoHealth Health for all the good work you're doing. It was a pleasure speaking with you and your audience.